All right, so when I was in high school, probably, you know, a junior, senior, I know that there were girls that I was hanging around with that were already thinking about marriage. The guy that they were going to marry. Not a specific guy, but the kind of guy that they wanted to marry. They had a picture, kind of a thought of what he was going to look like. Now, the reality is that that guy never showed up. They married some bum, and he's made a mess of her life, and she's added to it. So, But the guys in high school, you know what they were thinking about? Sex. That's all they think about. Like every five seconds. It's just like, boom, boom. Sometimes they're just like, you know, and all of a sudden a thought pops in their mind. They're going like, where did that come from? I'm studying, you know, algebra, and all of a sudden I'm thinking of sex. What in the world is wrong with me? Well, there's nothing wrong with you. You're not broken. You're not perverted. You're not, you know, some degenerate. You were made in the image of God and by God, and he made us to be sexual beings. So it's okay. I got to tell you, this is really funny. This happened, oh, man, a long time ago. I think maybe even before our kids were born, we were married. And I was on the phone talking to my mom. And I told my mom, I said, hey, mom, I've got one word for you to think about the rest of the day. And she's going, okay, honey, what's that? And I said, sex. And all of a sudden, the next thing I know, my brother's on the phone going, what'd you say to mom? Because she just turned bright red and handed me the phone. <laughs> okay? So, it, you know, for my mom, it, that was not a topic we talked about. Matter of fact, my dad told me, he says, you want to know anything about sex? Go stand out in the barnyard for five minutes. You'll learn everything you need to know. <laughs> so today we're going to kind of come at this from a different point of view because, you know, um, we're not the only civilization that's ever had to deal with a sexually charged society. I mean, we, we live in it right now, and, and it's absolutely just daunting the kind of junk we have to deal with on a continual basis. But as John told you, the Corinthians lived in a sexually charged community. They had temple prostitutes, uh, I mean, there was all kind of debauchery going on in the city. And, and so they lived in it every day. Every single day they had to deal with this stuff. We would call it, we would ha- call it a he- uh, hedonistic uh, culture, hedonism. Because they would just, what that means is basically whatever you want to do sexually, whoever you want to do it with, go ahead and do it. It's no big deal. And the reason that they think that way is because what they would say is what you do with your body has no moral implications into your spirit or soul or the rest of your life. It's just your body. You can do whatever you want to with it, and there are no moral implications to it. Today we have people on the other side of that that would be called prudish or, uh, um, you know, ascetic in their approach to human sexuality. And their point of view is is that the body actually is a vehicle for sin and evil. And so you don't have sex because it leads to the possibility of sin. And, and their thought is, is the only reason that you would ever have sex is for procreation and that's it. And so you have kids and that's it, no more. Because it could lead to Something else. So you have asceticism on this side and you have hedonism on this side. And those are the extremes. And what do we want to do? We want to follow the biblical mandate on sexuality. And by the way, the Bible talks a lot about sex. And and so, you know, if you're embarrassed a little bit about that, hey, hey, it's okay. You can be like my mom. You can blush a little bit. That's fine. But you need to understand that, that God created us to be sexual beings. He created sex as something that would be God-honoring and a pleasure and enjoyment for us. So let's just celebrate it, okay? Keep your clothes on. (laughs) But we'll celebrate it, all right? So the biblical view on sexuality is that we have one individual who is involved sexually with another individual of the opposite gender within the context of marriage. That's the biblical view of sex. Sex... The, the marriage bed is to be remain holy by having sex only with your spouse. That's what the Bible teaches. And in the Bible, your spouse is a man or a woman. And so 
you know, our country's kind of got this whole thing kind of messed up, and so we've got this whole thing going on. And sexuality, when it is healthily expressed in the context of which God designed it, it ultimately humanizes us by affirming both our body and our soul. I, I don't know if you knew this or not, but when you are intimate with your spouse, there is something very spiritual about that moment. It's not just an animal kind of act like you find in the barnyard, like my dad told me. There is something very spiritual about what God did when he created a man and woman to be intimate with each other. And, and what our society do, has done is they've tried to remove the intimacy of the spiritual side of marriage out of it and just to make it some kind of a physical act and that's all it is. Matter of fact, what we've got going on in our country today is just absolutely mind-blowing to me because, you know, when we enter into this covenant of marriage that God has laid out for us, he's the one that said, here's this ordinance of marriage called together, a man and a woman to be together. This is the first thing I'm commanding people to do, that they should get married and live together. And because of the intimate act of intercourse, it's not just the physical act. At its core, it's a very spiritual connection between a husband and wife. Now, currently, marriage is at an all-time low in the history of the United States. In 2011, the Pew Research Center found that 51% of all Americans were married, compared to 72% in 1960. In 1960, uh, rates of cohabitating couples are rising. Less than half a million couples were cohabitating in 1960, compared to 7.5 million cohabitating people in 2010. You know what that says? It says that, that marriage doesn't matter. Divorce rates continue to astound everyone, both inside the church and outside the church. It's an epidemic in our, in our country. The 2009 U.S. Census shows that one out of two first-time marriages is estimated to end in divorce. Now, I know that in this group of people here, we have had a bunch of you that have had gone through divorce, and it's painful, and it's hurtful. And I want you to know something. Even though that that was not God's plan for you, we love you, and we're sorry you had to go through that, and we want to help you find healing. That's what God wants. He wants better for us. So what this has done is it's led to a lot of people giving up on marriage. More than half of the first marriages begin with unmarried cohabitating people. So in other words, what they do is they're going to go like, let's see if we fit together first, so let's live together for seven years, and then they get married, and then two years later they get divorced. That just doesn't make sense to me, but whatever. Um, divorce has, has, has stepped into the lives of most of us here. Most of us either have, have parents or family members or close friends that have gone through divorce, and it has wrecked families. It, it, it's splitting up families when children are very young, and it's far too common. It's all too common. So even if you live together with parents that are still together and they've always been there, you have probably still seen unless it's a very rare case, the ugliness of marriage. Marriage isn't always the, the greatest thing in the world. There's the, you know, it's not just the pain of divorce. Oftentimes, it's the pain of people staying married. And some of you have had very difficult experiences in your marriage up to this point. There's no shortage of brokenness of marriage on display in the world and in our own personal lives. And for this reason... We need an outside perspective to recover the goodness and the beauty of marriage. So here in the seventh chapter of Corinthians, Paul's going to address three essential issues in human relations. He's going to deal with the gift of singleness. He's going to deal with the gift of marriage. And he's going to deal with the gift of sex. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to start off with talking about being single. And within the confine of the faith community, what that means is celibacy. 
Well, what does that look like? We're sexual beings, but yet there's this singleness that comes to it. And so let's look at verses uh, 6 through 9 of chapter 7. It says, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I am myself, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So here's the first thing that Paul's kind of talking about. It's the gift of celibacy. There are single people that, that have a complete and satisfied life being single. I have a number of friends that are single. They have never married. They, they, they are not in the market of looking for a spouse, and they are completely satisfied and content being single. It's a gift that they've embraced from God. And we look at it kind of like us who are married, and we're going like, on one hand, we're going like, dude, you just don't know what you're missing out on. You get to come home at night, and there's the family. You've got the kids. You've got your wife. And you just don't get what you're missing out on. And then on the other hand, we go, dude, you're so lucky because I go home and there's my wife and my kids. <laughs> right? That coin cut, uh, you know, that edge, that knife cuts both ways. And, and so what, what we're looking at is what Paul was talking about. Paul was so completely committed to the life of being single and, and being celibate that he longed for everyone to have it. Paul cherished his singleness because it put him at utter disposal of Jesus to do what Jesus was calling him to do. Think about this. Here's, here's what he didn't have to deal with. He didn't have to worry about when he went on a mission trip where he was in danger about his family, what would happen to them if he died. He didn't have to worry about getting money put together for Paul Jr.'s education and clothing. He didn't have to worry about continually making sure that he's going back home and stoking the home fires in the relationship with Mrs. Paul. He didn't have any of those things that were hindering him from doing what he felt God called him to do. And as a single person, he was able to do a whole lot more than he would have been able to do if he was married. And so, you know, we've got single people in, in our congregation. I want you to know something. We love you. You are a great addition to our church. We need you here. I also want you to know this, that you have the opportunity to do a lot of things that the rest of us who are married can't do. You can pull up and go and do something for the kingdom of God at a moment's notice. You don't have to worry about your spouse or your children or grandchildren or anything like that. You can just go. And so here's my, my thing to you. I haven't even talked this over with the, the governing board or anything like that, but I'm going to say it, and you guys can hold me to it. So if you're single and you're going like, hey, I want to go on a mission trip and I want to go help some of our missionaries, I want to go do that, I'm ready to go right now, you let us know, we'll make it happen. We care so much about you and your ministry outside of the walls of this church and outside of the United States even, that we will help you get the funding to go to, to do that. And so if you're going like, man, I think God's calling me to go to, to Africa or to Indonesia or to France or to Germany or to Hawaii. No, no, no wait a minute. That's not a mission field. We will make sure that you get there. We will get it so that you are fully funded and you don't have to worry one red cent about money. You do not have to have that to be a, an issue in your mind. You know, and so you have an opportunity to serve others around the world on behalf of Wind River Community Church. Now, married people can do it, but it, it, it's a whole different ballgame when that happens. And there's a lot more that's involved, so... Let me just say it again. We love you. We want to see you thrive in ministry. So whatever you need to do ministry, we're here to help you. Now, there are other people um, in this world today who love singleness for the wrong reasons. And there are people within the church context that love singleness for the wrong reasons. And, and the reason that they love it is because 
it means that, that they're not accountable to anybody. It gives them the freedom for self-realization. They're saying, nobody's going to pull my strings. No one's going to cramp my style. They're saying that, that they think they have this freedom. Uh, it happens outside of the church inside of, and inside of the church to be sexually free, to go and explore all of their sexual desires. And that's the reason why they don't want to be tied down to any one individual. And, and this singleness, then, is a kind of mindset that is purely for self-indulgent, self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction, and is one of the most ungodly ways of interacting with humanity. It's all self-absorbed. But God has called many of you to a life of celibacy. The teaching of this passage for you is that it's a gift to be celebrated. You should be dreaming as many of you are, how your freedom can be maximized for the cause of Christ here and around the world. You have some advantages that married people don't have. So don't despise your singleness. Embrace it as a gift from God. Now, I know that there are maybe some single people here going like, but I really want to get married. I really want to have a family. I really want to engage in family life. And I don't have anyone. Well, there's a couple of things going on with that. First of all, if you're not dating a little Jewish carpenter first, you shouldn't be dating anybody else. If Jesus isn't your lover, then you will suffer if you try to find someone to fulfill that role for you. So first of all, start dating Jesus. Now, if you're a guy and you're going like, well, that sounds really weird. Look, he's all things to all people. All right? So if you want to put a dress on him, go ahead. All right? But it, the, the point of it is, is that our heart's affections have got to be connected to Jesus first and foremost before we try and connect with another human being. Because if we try to connect with another human being, that, that, that in not connecting with Jesus first, then we're looking for someone else to bring satisfaction and fulfillment to our life that only Jesus can bring. And it never works out that way. You're looking for Mr. Right or Mrs. Perfect to come along and fulfill those expectations in your life. And what you find out is three months after you've been married, you're going like, I married a total loser. And they're saying, I married a moron. Because the truth is, is that nobody's perfect. There's only one perfect person. His name's Jesus. He's already got a bride. It's called the church. That's us. He's already taken as far as that kind of relationship goes. So if you're single and you're wanting to have a mate, be patient. Date Jesus. Engage with Jesus. All right? I'm going to move on and we're going to start talking about the gift of marriage. And we're going to go back to the beginning of this chapter, verses 1 and 2. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. Now, the first thing that Paul's addressing here, and it's not emphatically, but it is implied strongly that having a sexual relationship outside of marriage is dangerous. And you're going like, how can it be dangerous? I don't see how how having sex with someone outside of marriage could be dangerous. Well, you all know that there's sexually transmitted diseases. I'm going to tell you, I never have to worry about sexually transmitted diseases. You know why? Because I've been married to the same person. I've only known one person my entire life. That's my wife. I don't worry about any of that stuff. That stuff's not even on my radar. But when people are involved in multiple relationships sexually... Now they have to start thinking about what it is that they could get in the process. And that's, that's a physical danger that you have to be aware of. So that's one of those things that Paul's talking about. And, and the other part of the danger is, is that it erodes your soul spiritually. You, you just don't know the damage that you do. Every time you can, that someone hooks up with someone else and they have this this sexual encounter, because remember what I told you, it's a spiritual thing where we're giving part of ourself to this person. When a wife 
and a husband are intimate, they are giving to each other and they're growing in that relationship. But when someone gives of themselves to someone else, they're giving a part of themselves away. And when they walk away from that relationship and they come to the next one, now they're giving some more of themselves away. And after a, a time and period of giving and giving and giving, you have no more of your emotional, spiritual self to give to a spouse. And so sex just becomes an act. There's nothing connected to God in it anymore. It's just what an animal does. God says, that's not why I created you. That's why Paul's saying, don't get involved sexually before you're married. The second thing that I want you to see out of these couple of verses is that each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. That doesn't mean each man should have his neighbor's wife. That, that's a no-no. So really what Paul's talking about here, he says that if you can't control your sexual desires, then you need to get married. Because when you get married, what it's going to do is it's going to protect you if you're following Christ as you should, first of all, from fornication. That's having sex before marriage. And it's going to protect you from adultery. Now, it's not 100% foolproof. Because you can still be letting your mind go to places and doing things that you shouldn't be doing and viewing things and letting your heart get attached to places that it shouldn't. But we're talking about a healthy relationship in Christ and in the marriage you have one partner until death separates you from that person. That's what a a marriage relationship looks like. Let's move on to verses 10 and 11 because it's still on marriage. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. In other words, Paul's looking at this whole thing and he's going like, all right, listen, kids. You guys are going to get into this little place where you're going to have an argument, you're going to get into a fight, and things are going to go south. Things are not going to be good. You're going to be angry. You're going to be mad. You're going to be throwing pots and pans at each other. You're going to say things later that you're going to regret. You're going to do things that you wish you had never done. This whole thing is going to be a blooming mess. But don't give up on the marriage. Don't separate yourself from your husband. And don't divorce your wife. There's no need for that. By the way, because you know what? Here's the thing. God is a master at resurrecting the dead. If he could raise Jesus from the dead on the third day, he can resurrect any dead marriage. Right? And so we give up too easily on it. We throw it out. We throw the towel in way too early. We go like, hey, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm not feeling the love from my wife anymore. And she's going, I don't know what the deal is. This guy used to be like a gentleman. Now he's kind of like a bull in a china closet. And I don't want to have anything to do with him. Well, what's the easy solution? Let's just go get a divorce. Let's just make it easy. Let's do the easy thing. And see, that's what's happened in our society is we never want to do the hard work anymore. You want to have a good marriage? It takes hard work. A good marriage is earned. It's not given. You want to earn a good marriage? Then take the time to figure these things out. Fight fair. You're going to have a fight, but make sure you fight fair. How do you fight fair? Well, you fight fair by making sure that the marriage is what wins, not the individual. You know, I told you earlier that Jesus made this commitment. Like, you know, this whole thing on marriage, the reason when when God put Adam and Eve together, he brought them together as husband and wife. He already had a view, a picture, a plan set forth about the relationship of Jesus, his son, with what we call the ecclesia, the church, the gathering of these people. 
And the, the verbal picture that he paints for us is that of a husband and a wife, a, a, a groom and a bride. And so what Jesus is, he's the perfect groom. He's the perfect husband. And what we are is we are the imperfect bride. I mean, if you ever thought of, of a marriage that's really bad, the marriage between Christ and the church is really stinky. It's rotten. You know why? Because we're always looking at something else. Our heart's affections for Jesus are always going somewhere else. And so we've got this, this love relationship with Jesus, and we're going like, Jesus, I just love you so much, but boy, do I love that car more. Boy, do I love whatever this is. Boy, do I love that person more. Boy, do I love, I love, I love. And, and so we've got this, this betrayal in this love relationship with Jesus that in a marriage, it would end the marriage. But because Jesus made a commitment to the church as the perfect groom, as the perfect husband, he says, my covenant to you isn't until death parts us. My covenant is for eternity. That's his love covenant to the church. So when we badmouth Jesus, when we throw mud on his face, when we, we turn our back and we neglect him, when we, we find other things to take his place, when we find other people to take his place, when we're adulterous in our relationship with Jesus, when we are, 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 are just giving up on the relationship, he is still faithful to the relationship. He will never leave. He will never forsake. He will always be there until the end of time. And we walk into God's glory and Jesus welcomes us as a bride to the bridegroom's tent in all her splendor, in all of her beauty. We will be spotless. We will be, we will, we will be sin free and we will enter into the glory of Jesus. And that's the picture of the relationship that God wants us to have with our spouses. Some of you are thinking, yeah, but God doesn't know my spouse. God's never been married to this guy. God doesn't know what she does at home. I walk around the house and this is all I get the whole time I'm there. Wah, 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 wah. And I think to myself, why did I come home? I should have stayed in the office. And you know what God says to that? He goes, I know all about that marriage because I'm married to you. And you're a horrible spouse, but I love you anyway. That's what God says to us. We don't like to hear it because we think like, man, I got my poop in a group. I got my stuff together. I am just, you know, I'm all that and a bag of chips. And God's going like, you ain't none of that. You got no chips. I mean, let's just be real about who we are, can we? Can we not just come to Jesus and just go like, man, I am the biggest screw up. I turn my back on you. I fornicate. I commit adultery. I do things I shouldn't do. When, when I know I should speak up, I shut up. I know when I turn away, when I should turn away, I turn to. I know when I should run away, I run in. I know when I should keep my mouth shut, I open it up. Jesus, that's who I am. And Jesus goes, man, thanks for just coming clean with me. And you know what? I love you and I am going to be a good husband to you. Because you know what the role of the husband is? The role of the husband is to to take the wife spiritually to the throne of God and help her to grow in the grace of Jesus. If you're married and you're a husband, you are responsible spiritually for your family. Now, they have a part to play in it too. You can't make them become Christians. You can't make them obey God. You can't make them do anything. But what God says is lead by example. Show them a life that's... that's manifested in Christ and Christ in them, led by the Holy Spirit, and a man of, of integrity who spends time in the Word, teaching the Word, living the Word with his family. If you didn't know that when you got married, you know it now and you've got no excuse. It's time to get busy. All right.
Let me move on to verses 12 through 16. It says, To the rest I, I say, I, not the Lord, that if a, any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she can, consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, you are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So here's the picture that I want you to get. You've got this couple... And somebody invites them to come to Wind River Community Church. They walk into the church. They sit down. And God starts to minister to both the husband and wife. None of them are in relationship with Jesus at all. And there's this ministry that's going on. And one of them is convicted. And they come to the place where they go like, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for my sin. I believe that he was raised on the third day. I believe that he is the one and only one that can forgive me of my sin and I'm going to step into that relationship. The other spouse does not. It doesn't give grounds for divorce because one's a believer now and one's not. Because the Bible does talk about being unequally yoked. That you should not willingly and willfully marry an unbeliever if you're a believer. The Bible's very clear on that. But if it happens to the marriage already, once you're in the marriage, God's saying, stay in it. No need to get divorced. No need to run away. Stay in it because what you do in that marriage can have an effect on the other person to come to Christ. It's by your gentle and quiet spirit that God works through it. It's not by dropping tracks on their pillow at night. You know, turn or burn, you're going to go to hell. That's not helpful. You don't leave little love notes in the lunchbox, you know, from from Revelations that talks about the damnation in the lake of fire. That's not going to do anything. But it is by your gentle and quiet spirit that God works through you. When you're totally transformed by Jesus, your life looks totally different than it ever did before. And what happens is your spouse all of a sudden turns around and goes like, I don't know who you are. You're not the woman I married, but I like you a whole lot better. What is going on? And then you just put a smile on your face and you just go like, I love Jesus. Jesus is absolutely changing me. He's changing the way I respond to you. He's changing the way that I parent these children. He's changing the way I interact with my friends. He's changing my view on my job. He's changing my entire life because of Jesus. That's the quiet and gentle spirit. Now, on the other hand, Paul says right here that if you have a spouse and one comes to faith and the other one does not, and the other one looks, the one who is not a believer looks at the believer and goes like, you know what? You have, you, you're crazy. You're worshiping a guy that's been dead for thousands of years? No, I can't buy into this thing. Like, I need scientific evidence. So... You go ahead and hang out with your little church friends and I'm out that door right there and I'm going to go. Paul says, don't put up a fight. Let them go. Just let them go. Because I'm going to tell you something. If you put up a fight and you start to argue your case, you're going to step into a living hell. And it'll be miserable. So there's the allowance to let them go. Now, doesn't, Paul doesn't say, go ahead and divorce them. He says, let them go. Let them make their own decisions. Let them be responsible for themselves. All right, we're going to move on now. And we're going to go to verses 3 through 5. And this is the part that I know you've all been waiting for because we're talking about the gift of sex. No amens on that? I mean, you guys should have all been jumping out of your seats going, yeah, let's hear it. All right, so let's read it first. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband for the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband but the husband does likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does 
Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right. So let's get something right out in the open. Don't read more into this than what's there. Because you're going like, wait a minute. My wife doesn't have any rights over her own body. All right, I'm just going to tell you, that will get you a baseball bat. (laughs) And you also, women, you're going like, so my husband's body is mine? I am going to chop it up. (laughs) No, that is not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is talking about here is conjugal rice. Do you know what that means? Have you ever heard of conjugal visits at the penitentiary? That's sex. Okay, let me just help you out with that. All right? So this, this kind of thing, you know, when you look at this, it's kind of like this, this sexual relationship between a husband and wife. What Paul's talking about is, is don't deprive, deny each other sex. It kind of reminds me of the guy who came home from work one day carrying a little brown paper bag with him when he walked in the door, walked into the kitchen. There's his wife. She's in there cooking. And he walks in and gives her a big hug and a kiss and goes, Honey, how was your day today? And she's going like, You know, it was really pretty good. The kids were behaving themselves. And, and I was able to get a lot of stuff done. And so, yeah. And he, he goes, Well, you know, I was in the store on the way home and I just thought of you and I picked up a little something for you. And so he hands her the brown paper bag. And she opens it up and she pulls it out. And there's a bottle of aspirin. And she looks at it for a minute. And she looks at him. And she goes, I don't have have a headache and he goes gotcha okay if you didn't get that come and see me afterwards I'll explain it to you all right so this this whole thing of a husband and wife and being together sexually is a big deal I mean I gotta be honest with you when I got married I had one thing on my mind. I'm finally going to have sex. That, I'm I'm just being honest. I mean, I made, my wife's hot. And if she's hot now, just think what she was like 33 years ago. Wow. Okay. And, And so I really want us to understand what Jesus thinks about this whole thing. Because in In Mark's gospel, here's what Jesus said. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Guys, good thing to move out of the house. Don't move your bride into mom and dad's house. Not a good thing. Hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they no longer are two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, there's this whole thing. Okay, I'm going to give you a little anatomy. A man's body is is built and designed by God to fit with a woman's body. That's the way it's designed. I'm going to tell you what sex is for. It's first of all for procreation. In other words, we're going to make little ones. What what God says is go in and populate the earth. It's for recreation. Particularly what that means is within the context of the church, We're recreating the church when we have babies. And we're pretty good at it at this church. Okay? And the third thing that sex is for is recreation. Did you ever think about that? I I didn't have enough time, but I was going to go and find out how many calories you burn. Okay? But here's the biggest breakdown on marriage. Here's why marriage breaks down. Because people come into marriage with the idea that this marriage is about me. It's about satisfying my needs, about my pleasure, about what I want, what I need. And so what they're looking for, what a lot of people are looking for now is different than what they looked for when my mom and dad got married or when my grandparents got married or when I got married. What they're looking for now is a partnership. 
a partner who's going to help them to go and fulfill all the adventures that they've got on their bucket list. They're looking for a partner who's going to to meet all of the needs that they have, whether it's a social need or a financial need or or it's an emotional need. It's all about me, and it comes down to sexual need. If If you're meeting all my sexual desires, then this is a good partnership. When I got married, when my, when my parents got married, when my grandparents got married, they married their best friends. Here's my best friend. I love spending time with them. We have the same view on Jesus. We love Jesus with the same passion. We want to do stuff for Jesus together, and we love being with each other. So let's get married because this is a match made in heaven. That's what it is. Not a perfect match. Imperfect. But what we have today is we have a whole bunch of people that are doing a bunch of silly things and it's both in the church and outside of the church. They have this ideal of what marriage is supposed to look like and this ideal is that it it, it all starts, first of all, on an attractiveness or sexuality. And Timothy Keller says this, there are two key factors for having this so-called new idealism. The first is physical attractiveness and sexual chemistry. In other words, the person has to be extremely physically attractive. The second is compatibility. Compatibility means they wanted someone who who has the willingness to take you in as you are and not change you. I am so thankful to God that my wife has changed me. You wouldn't like who I was. I didn't like who I was. But because she loves Jesus, and she has a gentle and quiet spirit about her most of the time, (laughs) not perfect, she has been able to point me in the direction of God and, and the transformation that God wanted in my life. But she didn't just point me and say, you need to go do that. She says, let's do it together. And in turn, I turn around and I say to her, let's walk by faith into this new thing. Let's go hand in hand together. Now, when when couples come into my office for pre-marriage counseling, I draw this little triangle on a piece of paper. And at this corner over here, I put one name. And on the other corner over here, I put the other name. And at the top, I put God. And what I say to them is, as you are individually growing in your relationship towards God, you come closer together as a husband and wife. But if one of you is growing and the other one is not, you're still the same distance apart and you're wondering what's wrong with your marriage because you're not growing in your relationship with each other. The reason is is that you both have to be spiritually in tune with Jesus. You have to have a passion for Christ first in order for the passion in your marriage to work. And when it does, then I'm going to tell you something. When you are connected spiritually to Jesus, when you got any young kids, plug their ears. The sex is out of the world. It's the best thing ever. Paul says, don't deny your spouse sexual pleasure. I mean, if, if your husband walks, walks through the kitchen and gives you a little, fat, a little pat on the fanny, a good game pat, you know, like good game, you need to turn around and go, you need to respond to that because he's sending you a signal. He's saying like, baby, let's, let's, let's know each other like Adam and Eve knew each other. You know, because it, it's, it's this whole thing. But part of the, the problem that we have in our society is that we don't understand how to get to that point. How do you get from walking in the door after a busy day and you're both exhausted and you just look at each other and go, you're awesome, but I am pooped. (laughs) Baby, you're hot, but I'm just like, I just want to lay down and you can bury me with dirt. Because that's the way we feel sometimes, right? And, And so what do we do? How do we get around this whole thing? Well, there's these things, they're called the five basic love languages. 
And when you speak your spouse's love language, it doesn't matter how pooped, how tired, how worn out they are, they are going to respond to you. So let me give them to you. Here's what they are. One of them is spending time together. Just hanging out. Okay, I'm going to tell you my wife's because I know her too. Time together, number one. Number two, acts of service. That's the second one, acts of service. So when I go in and I stand at the sink and she's at the sink and we're doing dishes together and we're washing dishes and then we go out and sit on the front porch and we, you know, I'm going to tell you, and I have no other, I have no agenda. I'm just hanging out with my wife like I should and I'm just doing stuff with her. Okay, you can, de- you can determine where that goes. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to cross the T and dot the I's on all this stuff, all right? So that's one. Acts of service is two. Words of affirmation. Some people's love language is when you come up to them and you just say, you know, when you did that, that was the most amazing thing. When I saw you handle that situation, that was like out of this world. And they're going like, they love me. They absolutely love me with the words of affirmation that they get. That's number three. And number four is just these little gifts. Some people's love language is gifts. So when you're walking through the grocery store and you pick up a flower and you take it home, goes, I was walking through the store and I just thought of you and I saw this flower and I picked it up and here you go, here's the flower. They go, oh. I used to buy my wife flowers all the time. And she'd go, oh, that's nice. And she'd put it over there because that was not her love language. And I'd go like, hey, I just bought that flower for you. you know <laughs> Nothing. And then the fourth one is meaningful touch. That's not a sexual touch. That's a warm hand on the shoulder. That's running your fingers through their hair. That's putting your hand on their knee. It's holding their hand. It's giving them embrace. It is just a meaningful touch. But when you enact one of their love language with the other person, you are guaranteed to be doing what God created you to do, no matter how tired they are. You know, here's what God thinks about sex. He wrote something in the Bible about it, and he used... He used this guy by the name of Solomon to put this thing together. And so I'm going to read to you, and I, I think it's up on the screen. Guys, you want to know how to speak a language to your wife to where she's going like, you're my man. Here's what it sounds like. So, uh, Song of Solomon 7, 1 through 9. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O noble daughter. Your round thighs are like jewels, the work of your master's hand. Your navel is a round bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat. Don't get that one. Circled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Get that one. Your neck is like a ivory tower. Your eyes are the pool of Heshbon by the gates of Bath Ram. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon. Don't think I would say that to a woman. Which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like... Carmel, your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all of your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts like its clusters. I say, I will climb that tree and lay hold of its fruit. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples of your mouth, like the best. Okay, who wants to go home now? (laughs) Some people are going like, hey, let's just sneak out of here. You see what God says? God's going like, man, this is a good thing. If you have never read the Song of Solomon, sit down and read it with your spouse because you both have a part. There's the man and there's the woman. Read it back to each other. I, I give you a hundred bucks if you can do it without giggling. <laughs> but see, I mean, this is the thing. This is what, what God thinks of a man and a wife in a sexual relationship. What does God say about it? It is good. It is very good. So, I'm just going to close this thing up right now because I think I've given you guys more than you can handle. I just want to go home, to be honest with you. <laughs> I've slept in a twin bed for about two weeks. Okay. Let me go back to the reflective questions, okay? So, and, and I, you know, I don't know how well these are going to apply to you. And um, I, you know, I read 
Song of Solomon 7 before I thought about these questions, and then I was kind of messed up and probably didn't do a real good job at it, but here they are. What's keeping you from taking time to be with your beloved? Now, if you're single, your beloved is a little Jewish carpenter. If you're married, your beloved is your spouse. For married people, how has your relationship with Jesus inspired intimacy with your spouse? It's for the glory of God. Jesus is in the midst of it. I know that's a little disturbing to know that Jesus is watching you, but he's given this gift to you for a reason. Don't deny it. Don't deny your spouse. Be involved in it. How does your thought life reflect the glory of God, whether you're single or married? For the singles, where can you make a maximum impact for Jesus that married people can't? For married people, when was the last time you when was the last time you took time to express your deepest love to your spouse and when will you go and make time to do that? Schedule it if you have to. Be spontaneous. The bottom line is is that that if you're single, embrace where you're at right now. If you have a desire to get married, God will get you there. But be satisfied with Jesus first and foremost. If you're married, then step into a biblical marriage relationship. Enjoy each other's sexuality. Enjoy what God has given to you. Don't go looking somewhere else for what's not yours. Enjoy the youth, the wife of your youth. Now, some of you are going like, well, I didn't marry her when I was young. I was, you're still young? Come on. So just embrace it because you know what? When we do that, our church is going to rock this community because they're going to go like, they have the best marriages. They have the best idea of what sex looks like. And they're going to wonder why you guys are always walking around with a big grin on your face. It's because you're satisfied in Jesus first and foremost. Amen? Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, God, that even with a difficult subject like this, we can laugh about it a little bit, but yet there is a truth that's put into that that we need to really pay attention to. We need to step in and embrace our spouses. We need to embrace you first and foremost, Jesus. And so I just pray for every person here that they would find their completeness, their satisfaction, their joy, their happiness, all in you first, and out of that relationship, it would spread into the other relationships of the world. So we commit this to you and ask for your blessing upon all of us. We pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.